1: And what this shows us is our cases per day have doubled in the past few weeks every 13 days. So that, again, is another measure that tells us we're accelerating the numbers of cases in our community.
2: All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a great show for you today on a day when the COVID-19 pandemic is hitting hitting a crucial point in British Columbia. We had 1,100 cases confirmed yesterday. It was a two-day total. We are now over 20,000 cases. We have soared to that 20,000 case threshold as the COVID-19 pandemic second wave washes over British Columbia especially in Metro Vancouver. Okay, we got a real special segment here for right now until the bottom of the hour. BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank you very much for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. Okay, I really appreciate this and your willingness to take calls from our listeners, which I think is is terrific that you can do that. We are Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to open the phone lines right now. So if you have questions about the COVID-19 pandemic, here's your opportunity to talk directly to the minister. I am going to encourage the callers to keep your questions short and we'll try to get in as many as we can. So let's open the phone lines right now. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898 star 9898 toll free on your cell your calls to health minister adrian dix just as we get some calls lined up minister can, can you put into your own words where we're at in this crisis right now because listening to bonnie henry yesterday just seemed like sort of doom and gloom uh where are we at right now in your mind well
3: it's not all doom and gloom um people have done some extraordinary things in bc but we have to do some more right now we've seen significant increases in the number of cases, particularly in Fraser Health, obviously, and in Vancouver Coastal Health. Those uh, are daily counts of cases. And our test positive rate has gone up uh, significantly in the last few weeks, really in the period that started uh, around Thanksgiving. So that's why there was a public health order two weeks ago Monday and why there was another one last Saturday to start to address that. We need to work together to cut the rates of transmission. Other parts of the healthcare system continue to operate fairly well, should be said. We've done the largest number of surgeries we've done in this week in many years, this past week and then the previous week and the one before that. So the system is responding well. Mortality rates are too high in BC. There's uh, been, a, been 54 people who have passed away from COVID-19 since October 1st. But they're three times as high in Ontario, three times as high in Alberta, eight times as high in Quebec. So we, have, no. um, we are responding at a serious level in that part of the pandemic, but we can't continue to sustain increases in hospitalization and case counts. And that's why uh, everyone has to follow the guidance and the orders of Dr. Henry right now.
2: Okay, Health Minister Adrian Dix here until the bottom of the hour, taking your calls on the open line. So the open line is open, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to some calls. Lynn on the open line. Hi, Lynn. Hi, guys. Hi.
0: I just wanted to to talk about enforcement, and I I guess I like to think that there's some method to the madness. I, I respect Bonnie Henry and everything that she's saying, but why are we so afraid to set high expectations specifically with regards to mandatory mask wearing. Like I was in the mall the other day and there's entire families walking around without masks. And, you know, I'm a teacher, we don't have to wear masks. And if our institutions can't be modeling those things, how can we expect the lowest common denominator in society to even, to, to even go along with that?
3: Okay. Minister. Well, I'd say Lynn that first of all, when I go shopping, which I do as well, a very significant number of people are wearing masks, and that's a good thing. Uh, I saw Dr. Henry do what she's done uh, dozens of times in my presence, which is look directly in the camera yesterday and say, wear masks in indoor public settings. A lot of our initiatives, a lot of things we're asking, including the absolute most important thing, physical distancing, is not the subject of a public health order directly. We still expect people to do it. And if we're going to be successful, We're going to need people to follow the guidance and help of public health. So this is a debate. I know we had it the last time I was on, and we continue to have it. But, Dr. Henry, it could not be more direct. I could not be more direct. Wear a mask in indoor public settings.
2: Okay. Let's go to Ken on the open line. Hi, Ken.
3: Guys, I just think you've kind of blown it and made a terrible mistake in dealing with this. And I'll make two points, and I have two questions.
4: Never in history have we quarantined the healthy before. That's a mistake. We should just protect the vulnerable and the the compromised, the elderly only. The rest people can go back to work. The number two, mass testing. If you would have gotten ahead of this and got way more testing out and then just quarantine the people
3: that have it, then the virus would die. Okay, Minister. I can't believe I can't Minister? Well, a couple of things. First of all, um, uh, people haven't been quarantined, but at different times in the pandemic, we've asked people to very strictly observe physical distancing, and it's been effective. Uh, Dr. Henry, as you know, has led efforts in, in dealing with pandemics on multiple continents, I think our public health teams are the best, and so their advice is strong, and it's always based on the science. I really encourage people to look at the presentation yesterday. It's on the BCCBC website, and they'll see examples of the spread of COVID-19, that it can spread from one place to another very quickly. And we showed three examples, one at a wedding, one at a workplace, one at a fitness facility. And all of those showed the way that um, COVID-19 is transmitted so we all have to take actions. We are taking strong steps to protect the vulnerable. That's been the success and the strength of what BC has done, the lowest mortality rates of the equivalent jurisdictions in North America. But look, COVID-19 can hurt anybody, and it does hurt anybody. We've never had this before. This is the first time. We don't know its long-term consequences, particularly people for people with other respiratory illnesses. And so we're asking people to take steps right now and Those steps are based on the science and on public health advice, and I strongly support them.
2: Okay, 604-280-9898 is the number to call Adrian Dix, star 9898, toll-free in your cell. Rob on the open line. Hi, Rob.
3: Good morning, Mr. Minister, and good morning, Mike. Uh, Congratulations on your election win, by the way. I have a question that's a little um, off the beaten track, and I'm wondering why... Um, Dr. Henry and the media advertise the number of people that have survived or recovered from COVID. I'm wondering if that's sending a wrong message to the to the extent that some people are thinking, "Well, if I get it, most people are beating it, so what's the big deal?" I'm trying to understand why you okay. advertise that number, okay, Minister. Uh, Because we want to give people the maximum amount of information. And while we talk about recovered, really what it means is discontinued isolation. So what we're telling people is how many people are in isolation right now because they've had contacts with people who have tested positive for COVID-19, how many active cases they are, and how many people essentially are not contagious, right? Uh, But there is no question, and I think the point that Rob is trying to make is that we don't know all of the long-term consequences for people's health of COVID-19 because this is the first year for COVID-19. So we can't know those things. We do know for many people, it comes across as a mild illness, you know, and this is one of the reasons why COVID-19 is so effective at transmitting itself in society. We also know that for many people who have recovered, as Rob says, it has lasting consequences. So uh, this is why we need to, across our society, we need to uh, um, significantly um, reduce transmission of COVID-19. It's a significant fact. So I don't think we're trying to provide a maximum amount of information to the public. And we're showing that people, of course, can recover But what's also clear is that for people with diabetes, people with uh, chronic diseases, and, of course, our elders, this is a significant risk of death.
2: My guest is B.C. Health Minister Adrian Dix as we continue to take your COVID calls on the open line 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Right back to your phone calls, Kim on the open line. Hi, Kim. Hi, good morning. Hi,
1: Go ahead. Yeah, um, I just have a couple of questions, if you don't mind, uh, just because we we're having a disagreement. Uh, and, um, so I'm single, and my understanding is I'm allowed to have two of my bubble, I'm allowed to have two people come into my house, but I can't go into my family's home. Is that correct?
3: Minister? Well, if you're single and your family is part of your bubble, then you can visit them if you're single. What you can't do in your own home is have a gathering. So you can't invite five or six people for dinner right now. And that just makes sense. And I just think, and we get a lot of questions like this, I'd say to Kim. And I think it's always best to be cautious. But generally, if you're talking about your family's home and you're single, you're part of their bubble. And you. And so if you treat it that way, then you're going to be fine. But not anyone else's home and don't invite people over.
2: Okay, what if you like live alone and you know we've heard about two people the two-person bubble you could have two friends maybe come and visit as long as they're the the member of their you're the member of their bubble what about your immediate family members if you don't live with them like can you go visit your parents and your brothers
3: and sisters well well for example and we had we had I think uh, we've had this call before we had it in the the past week you live in Delta your your mom lives in Richmond you need to drop off food and things to her home because that's the support you give regularly Then absolutely you can do that. But um, I live, I'm calling to you from my uh, living room in East Vancouver in Collingwood, and uh, Renee and I live here, and we're not having people over, right? We are our bubble right now. And I think, uh, and this is for two weeks right now, and we need people really to adhere to that because it is just these kind of occasions where there's transmission. Dr. Henry told the story of an eight person birthday party. Uh, where someone passed away um, from COVID-19, got it at the birthday party. That's where it was transmitted. Six people got sick at the party. So they weren't doing anything outlandish or anything else. They were having a birthday party. Well, right now, we can't have that sort of thing. And if you have a doubt about it, don't do it.
2: Okay, Rylan on the open line. Hi.
5: Good morning, uh, Minister Dix and Mike. Uh, just to top up to the uh, first caller regarding to mask. Dr. Bonnie Henry and yourself are doing a great job. Minister Dix, however, stopping short of mandating masks, the folks that are obviously uh, getting it and, and uh, understanding this are wearing masks, but there's a large demographic that are not by stopping short of mandating masks does not, not limit enforcement by bylaw and or police to ticket people that are unnecessarily
3: uh, continuing to uh, asymptomatically uh, or symptomatically uh, the spread, uh, continue the spread. Well, First of all, uh, with respect to masks, uh, and and I think it's a question lots of people have because it's sort of in the public debate right now and certainly in the American public debate, which sometimes uh, we listen to a lot. I mean, it's not a question of being unwilling to use orders. Dr. Henry last Saturday um, used focused orders, which are focused on areas where we're seeing transmission. It has been our strong advice for a long time to maintain physical distancing and to wear masks. The practical, there are some practical issues about enforcing things, should they be in order, but the advice is unequivocal. It's wear masks in indoor public settings. And it's advice of the people who do this work in public health that that should continue to be our strong, repeated, eloquent guidance, but at the moment should not be a mandate. And that's uh, that's the or advice we follow.
2: Is your concern there about enforcement of a, a mandatory mask order or a mask mandate that there will... I heard Bonnie Henry say yesterday, for example, even if you bring in the order and make it mandatory, there will still be people who refuse to mask up, and then that creates an, an enforcement issue or potential conflicts in public places. Is that a concern for you?
3: Well, to be effective, we're going to have to convince people uh, to wear masks. Uh, that's the practical reality of it. And uh, and we said from the beginning that the most effective way to stop the transmission of COVID-19 is physical distancing. Masks are important. They protect other people, but they don't protect you. And so we we have to say that they're part of a layer of protection, but they are not a silver bullet for anything. Nothing's a silver bullet for anything. We have to do it all, right? And so um, well, we don't have a mandate for physical distancing, there is nothing more important than that right now. And uh, I really encourage people to continue to do that and to wear masks, like wear masks. And if you looked at Dr. Henry yesterday, she looked at the camera for the umpteenth time and she said, wear a mask and we have to wear a mask. And you do it. Ultimately, um, we do lots of things in our society, even though we don't know whether they'll be enforced or not. Right. Uh, We need to do this to help one another and to pay our do our job as people in society.
2: Okay, Michael on the open line. Hi, Michael.
3: Hi guys. Um quick question with the follow up. Prior to COVID, how many people in BC caught the flu on an annual basis and how many people died because of complications because of the flu? Do we have that number? What, what, what's your point? What's your point? Well, I, I think this is kind of getting over exaggerated and I want right. to know how big how much difference the COVID has caused Okay. And if we don't know those numbers. Why don't we know those numbers? Minister Oh, um, uh, I, uh, I invite uh, Michael to read our plan from September where we laid out this issue in, in, uh, in, in detail in terms of its impact on our hospital. So, of course, we know those numbers. But the issue is this. COVID ni- it's not COVID-19 or the flu. It's not COVID-19 or diabetes. It's not COVID-19 or the addiction uh, and, uh, and overdose crisis. It's COVID-19 and all those things. It's in addition to all those things. One of the reasons we are so concerned about November and December is because it's influenza season, respiratory illness season. We didn't know what the impact would be on COVID-19. It looks like it's bad, right? But we know we also have to deal with influenza and all those other things. So if it was one or the other, then you could treat it differently. But these deaths are incremental. They're in addition to those things that take place. This is a significant crisis around the world. There's not a country in the world that's not dealing with this question. And so I just say to, to Michael and everything else that um, we're not overplaying this in any way, shape, or form. We have to take strong action together or there are going to be serious consequences for our health, for our society, for our economy.
2: Minister, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the listeners' questions today. Hey, anytime. Take care, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about COVID and kids' health now. A brand-new report out yesterday said the COVID-19 pandemic having a major effect on the mental health of children, anxiety, depression, behavioral issues, even post-traumatic stress, all of these could become far more common in kids, both during the pandemic and when this is hopefully finally all over. For those children most severely affected, the symptoms could increase by almost tenfold fold according to this report that was released yesterday. Have a listen to this. This is Dr. Charlotte Waddell. She is the Director of Children's Health Policy at Simon Fraser University, a part of the researchers on this study. It's a threat of um, illness or injury or death. Children may also be seeing loved ones become ill or
0: injured or even killed, harmed. Um, and then there's the reaction, what society does in response to those events, and that's certainly what we're living with regarding
2: COVID. Okay, really troubling report. It was commissioned by BC's independent representative for children and youth, Dr. Jennifer Charlesworth, and here's what she had to say.
0: As government moves forward and thinks about the economic recovery and the pandemic recovery is put the children at the center, because it's so important that we care for those, the, the, the well-being of our young people, if we're going to have the, the long-term recovery that we aim for.
2: Okay, let's talk about this now with my guest, Dr. Jillian Roberts. She's a child psychologist, teacher, and a a mom with a busy practice in Victoria where she's helped thousands of kids and their families. She's written a series of award-winning kids' books, and she's the clinical founder of Amira Health. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Dr. Roberts, thanks a lot for coming on.
0: My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me on again
2: okay it's it's always great to talk to you and when this report came on we've talked about these issues in the past during the pandemic and and the concerns around mental health for kids but i thought this report yesterday really put it in sort of stark relief of exactly uh, what we're looking at here with children's mental health and for the potential of it to become a really major problem in our society i mean you're an expert on this Did, did anything surprise you in that report yesterday or just confirmed a lot of what you already you already see up close
0: uh, it absolutely confirmed what I see up close. Yeah. It, it is. Um, it, I. It was funny. Someone had referred to my front desk as being chaotic, and it, and it, it is right now chaotic with the amount of phone calls that are coming in daily, um, with families struggling to find services for their children.
2: Okay, so you're seeing in your own practice during the, the pandemic that there's lots more calls for help coming in.
0: Yeah, in my practice, I have strangers reaching out on social media. Um, I think people are really scared um, by what they're seeing in their children.
2: Okay, when we think about uh, the, these the threats to kids, which what children are are most at risk? Like, are some kids more more able to kind of handle the stresses of of this pandemic, and others are more vulnerable? Like, which kind of, which kind of kids are the most vulnerable? Would you say?
0: Well, any child that has some kind of pre-existing condition, whether that um, that condition be medical, where they're frightened for their life catching COVID, or if they already um, have an anxiety disorder um, or a depression that they're dealing with, this would be a significant you know, additional stressor on their plate. Um, but I would say also that the children that are really sensitive, um, the ones that listen to parents, you know, that are kind of always kind of overhearing what parents are, are talking about, the ones that are trying to listen to the news. Um, but, uh, you know, children that um, are, I, I think I would say, you know, kind of bright enough to be able to really um, understand what is happening and are and are tuned in enough. Um, uh, they, it's almost like they have a kind of hypervigilance right now.
2: Right. Are children typically uh, able to bounce back from stresses like this or or is there the risk as it was kind of outlined in this study yesterday that this poses the risk of uh, mental health problems continuing even when they become adults is that a fear right now
0: Um, well I have tremendous faith in children's resilience. Um, I'm actually doing a resilience study of my own through the University of Victoria looking at our um, university students uh, and their mental health during COVID. Um, But I think that we need to apply a resilience framework. So resilience framework is based on research um, that helps us to understand that everybody can in fact bounce back from stress if there's the, the proper protective factors in place. And I think what the government and public policy needs to consider right now is making sure that um, from, a, from a societal systems perspective, you know, in the community, at schools, um, at, a, at a broader provincial level, that we're making sure kids are getting access to what they need so that they can buffer the stress and um, process it, make sense of it, um, uh, and strengthen their own resilience So that when things um, uh, become normal eventually, um, that that they can continue and carry on with their lives. And hopefully this experience has made them stronger.
2: All right. Speaking to child psychologist, Dr. Jillian Roberts, about yesterday's report on kids mental health during the pandemic. What are the most common sort of mental health problems that that you're seeing in your practice and a lot of these were outlined in the report yesterday during this pandemic, like what kind of, what kind of problems are on, on the rise right now among kids?
0: Um, I would say heightened irritability. Um, And so uh, um, we know that depression um, can provoke irritability in children. Um, And when children are anxious, they can often um, respond in a fight or flight um, um, process. And so What i'm mostly worried about right now is that children who are struggling and let's say are are acting out um, or are a little bit combative or non compliant um, are being disciplined as though you know they're they're manipulatingly making that choice to the adults in their life what i'm I'm saying over and over uh, to um, adults is that we must share our calm. Um, and, and teach our children how to calm and um, co-regulate. So that means helping, not sending them to their room uh, to sit, calm down, but sitting with them gently, rocking them, um, soothing them so that they can calm down. Um, okay. We are not going to help children uh, behave better by making them feel worse.
2: Right. The, the report also outlines a series of kind of clinical, clinical uh problems that kids may face anxiety depression post-traumatic stress are you seeing more of these and how serious is that those type of conditions
0: um i i i am seeing um more anxiety and depression um like in terms of post-traumatic stress. you know. One of the things that we see in post-traumatic stress is hypervigilance, um, which is like being always on guard. And I and I certainly am seeing that. But I'm I'm getting children wetting their bed again after having been dry for two years. Um, children getting in um, uh, sites on the playground. Um, children just refusing to do any schoolwork, like just. You know, just not wanting to do it, not doing it. Um, parents choosing to homeschool their children and then having no idea how to get their child to engage with schoolwork. Children just refusing. Um, lots, lots of temper tantrums. Uh, you know that kind of thing. That's what I'm seeing. Right.
2: What kind of a help is available for kids and families out there right now? And is and is that a problem with a lack or limited services available? And And the ability for families to access services that they need.
0: Well, it's a huge problem. Like that, I would I would say is an incredible problem. We we have um, tremendously long wait lists. Um, Family doctors can refer families to um, child and youth mental health centers. There's long wait lists there. Um, There's online parenting courses that parents can sign up for uh, um, by asking their family physician. But in terms of like you know getting in front of a human being. And, and speaking with yeah. uh, a, a therapist, most families right now are having to turn privately for that. And I, and I would encourage families to look at their extended health plans. They may not realize that they have some coverage for that. And most of that coverage uh, changes over January 1st. So families might be able to have a, a, a quite a little bit of a good go um, if they think about what they could get in December and then into January.
2: Right. For a lot of parents, so who may not have that kind of coverage, maybe they're looking to the authorities for help. Do you get the impression that this is a a high priority, let's say, for government?
0: Well, I I hope it is a high priority. I haven't seen, like, I mean, I haven't seen the same type of responses like we've had wage income uh, and um different financial um responses from government but i do think a mental health response from government would be welcome right now all right
2: welcome back to the show let's talk about the continuing political turmoil in hong kong now it has been a dramatic week in hong kong where pro-democracy lawmakers resigned on mass. That happened after four pro-democracy members of the Hong Kong legislature were disqualified by the government. The struggle for democracy, this the friction with the central Chinese government, Beijing, continuing there. In the aftermath of that Canada announced it would streamline immigration processes for people who want to leave Hong Kong and come to Canada. Have a listen to this now. This is Canada's Federal Minister of Immigration, Marco Mendicino.
4: Those Hong Kongers who are hoping to find a job, continue their studies, apply their trade, use their experience to help in our economic recovery, as well as driving our long-term prosperity.
2: Okay, let's talk about the situation now with my guest, Ai men Lau. She is an advisor to the Alliance Canada-Hong Kong Alliance. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: Thanks a lot for coming on. This has been quite a remarkable week in in Hong Kong. Can you uh, explain to the listeners what happened here with these these disqualified Hong Kong members of the legislature? I know two of them actually were former Canadian citizens, and they were disqualified by the Hong Kong government, then triggering these other uh, resignations by other pro-democracy lawmakers over there. How? What happened there?
1: Yeah, so what happened was... Um so uh Alvin Young, Kwok Kaiki, Dennis Kwok and also Kenneth Lung were ousted from the legislature on Wednesday right. after a ruling from Beijing saying that lawmakers must be loyal and not harm national security. This obviously triggered the re- mass resignation out in protest due to the fact that it's it's something as seen as uh like it, basically squashing out any dissent in the legislature. Uh, And LegCo is where all the laws are being made in Hong Kong right now. So the fear is um, laws favoring China and bringing Hong Kong under the control of China will now be passed more efficiently and faster due to a lack of opposition.
2: Right, right. So does that make the Hong Kong legislature now just... What like kind of a rubber stamp of 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 the Chinese government in Beijing is that is that what is that what we have in Hong Kong now?
1: Yeah, essentially, and uh, basically, right now it's again. Legco has always been a bit of a tension among the Hong Kong political system due to it always having a pro Beijing bent, but there was always an opposition. There was always pro democracy lawmakers in the Legco since the beginning of One Country, Two Systems. Now that's no more. So again, now it's becoming more of a rubber stamp, though Carrie Lam of the Hong Kong government has promised it won't happen. There's not a lot of trust in that.
2: Right. It seems like, you know, these pro-democracy members of of the legislature there in Hong Kong, they were, I guess they were already in the Minority. I mean, there's a minority in there, but the fact that they're resigning, they're being disqualified and booted out by the central government, but does that make any hope of democracy in Hong Kong even that more faint?
1: Yes, it's very faint right now. And essentially the message that was sent yesterday or a few days ago when this happened um, was that if you are a lawmaker or a politician in Hong Kong and you do not follow or align with the Hong Kong government Ultimately, the Chinese Communist Party uh, party line and values, you will be disqualified. So essentially what has happened is now the Chinese political system has been exported to Hong Kong um, in violation of the Sino joint, uh, Sino-British Joint Declaration that enshrined uh, the protection of this.
2: Right. OK. Is it also kind of a warning shot to anyone else? Like if you're if you have pro-democracy tendencies, you, you better, what, be quiet or, or know your place because, you know, the government could bring the hammer down on you, too.
1: Absolutely. And I think a lawmaker had stated a few other a few days ago that um, essentially Hong Kongers should be gearing up and preparing for a very long time where there's a sole voice in Hong Kong government. And as well as if you are a dissident, be prepared for more pressure.
2: Okay, my guest is Men Lau. She is an advisor to the Canada-Hong Kong Alliance. Let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the measures, uh, immigration measures announced uh, this week by Canada, uh, streamlining uh, ways for people to leave Hong Kong, uh, come to Canada. Are these aimed at uh, dissidents, like pro-democracy dissidents in Hong Kong who can come to Canada under an as- uh, asylum?
1: So, uh- not not entirely. It seemed as if the government yesterday uh, during the press conference had highlighted and emphasized that this was to meet economic objectives and to allow um, a, an opportunity for Hong Kongers seeking to leave. But it wasn't really aimed at dissidents, um, and that's something that was noted by many. And some have criticized the government for that. We still need you know measures for asylum pathways of support for refugee sponsor, sponsorship programs excuse me um because there are the number of asylum claims have jumped up
2: yeah there's a lot of canadians in hong kong right so could we see could we see a lot of canadian citizens or people with dual citizenship returning to canada could like could we see a flood of people coming from hong kong into canada is that
1: possible Look, it's hard to say right now. Um, one of the things is the national security law is it's very hard to tell how it's being implemented in Hong Kong. It seems to be subject to the winds of the state. You'll hear a lull in the media and you won't really hear much from, you know, what's going on in Hong Kong. And then all of a sudden you'll have a week like this week. And it's happened since the national security law has been in place. And again, I don't think anyone really wants to leave their home. Right, right. So there are indications that there are people seeking to leave. However, if it's going to be a mass flood, as uh, many have expected, I I say it's hard to say at this
0: moment.
2: Okay, this is really troubling times, obviously for the pro democracy movement in China or in Hong Kong, especially with these pro democracy legislatures being kicked out of the legislature and and people resigning on mass. I mean, where where are we at right now from your perspective, perspective here from the Hong Kong Canada Alliance for the democracy movement in Hong Kong is like, is it still, is there still hope there that they can continue to have some influence?
1: You know what? There's still hope. It certainly has chilled uh, significantly. However, I think many are turning to the international community and we're hoping to rally the international community um, to aid us in this because Um, it's, hard, it's getting harder and harder in Hong Kong. And Nathan Law is a prime example of this. Who He left Hong Kong and is now in London and is actively um, in, engaging in advocacy for Hong Kong right now. And certainly many overseas organizations such as Alliance Canada Hong Kong and a number of other Canadian Hong Kong organizations are doing the same here.
2: Yeah, has Canada been tough enough for for your liking here and standing up to to the the Beijing government? I know we have like a, a new ambassador to the United Nations, who uh, in Bob Ray, who has been speaking, I guess, a little bit more forcefully. Is that is that signaling any kind of change in Canada's diplomatic posture in your in your
1: mind? I am hoping that the immigration measures are sig- signaling a shift in our approach to China. I will say that it's been incredibly frustrating as I have found the messaging and the approach to China thoroughly inconsistent since uh, the 2019 Hong Kong protests. And, you know, when, when the national security law was implemented, Canada immediately suspended ex- the extradition treaty to Hong Kong, which was a move that was very much widely celebrated by the Hong Kong community. Right. However, then we didn't hear for months about the, the immigration measures that were promised in July, and it certainly seems that we we're not too sure how the liberal government will approach and moving forward with the China policy and China approach. So it's been a, it's been a little tough to say. Um, yeah. I am advocating for a stronger stance myself and right. certainly think that we need to be acting now.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of Canadians would agree with you. Thanks a lot for coming on today with your perspective on it.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about one of the industries that's been so impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is the travel industry, largely shut down during the early days of the pandemic. Now, another big blow to travel with the second wave of the virus. A lot of travel restrictions and advisories now being imposed. So very difficult for the travel business. But travel industry leaders planning to survive and thrive once again when better days return all right let me introduce you to my guest now canadian travel entrepreneur bruce poon tip bruce is the founder of g adventures which has grown into an internationally recognized tourism adventure brand he's been a speaker at the united nations he's done co-ventures with groups like national geographic he's written several best-selling books his new ebook. Is unlearn the year the earth stood uh, stood still? It looks at travel in the wake of COVID nineteen. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show, Bruce. Thanks a lot for coming on.
4: Thanks for having me. Great to be here.
2: Um, it's it's been really fascinating to, to follow your career and and the the rise of of G Adventures as a as an adventure tourism company, which has just been such a, a great success for you and. Man, oh, man, I I just I can't imagine how difficult this pandemic has been for you. What what has this been like for you to be, you know, a guy who would normally be traveling all around the world at any given time to be kind of largely, you know, grounded here?
4: Well, uh, that's a you're asking two questions there. Personally, it's a challenge for me. I've never been in in, I've never been grounded this long. So but I mean, that's an easy um, challenge to overcome. But in terms of company, though, it's been devastating. Yeah, I mean, we have to make some really tough decisions as a business. Um, you know, we, we never thought it would last this long. I mean, when we started making you know, decisions, it escalated so quickly. We never imagined the borders could just close or the planet could just close. So um, it does, um, But we've made some really tough decisions. We're, you know, we're eight months into it, you know, and we thought maybe it 60 days, 90 days. But now that we're eight months into it, we're starting to get some good news finally. And we see opportunity now for the first time on the other side. Um, you know, cause when there's ever been a great disruption in the business world, there's great opportunities on the other side and we're finally kind of starting to see that and there's green shoots about vaccines yeah. you know, there's air, countries are opening we, we have and i'm monitoring them every day we had new countries open today and yesterday november 1st people are traveling we ran, we've run 36 trips in september they're, they're mainly in europe for europeans but we're still getting people willing to travel so you know we're hoping we're going to come out of this soon okay so you guys are still running some trips yeah, we have a few trips going. I mean, it's, we ran. I think in the, since September, we've run about like close to forty trips. I think, um, and they're mainly Europeans to Europe, and we'll get more Canadians going as well once they take de- take to take away the, co- the the quarantine once you come home. We've had Canadians on trips, but they actually are Canadians in Europe, so uh, we don't. We're not getting eaten. little to no Americans, little to no Australians, and. And we're getting um Europeans taking European trips though at the moment. Croatia's open, Greece is open. Um, you know Spain was open at one point, it's closed now, so we're just rolling with a very fluid situation right now.
2: Okay, you've had a really amazing rise in this business. I mean, I was just taking a look at some of the stats for your company last year in two thousand and nineteen. You had like two hundred thousand people took took a G adventures. Tour. Can you uh, just tell the listeners who may not be uh, familiar with your company, what, what are the type of tours that you guys do there at G Adventures?
4: Well, we have, we have you know, a thousand different tours for all yeah. different demographics. We have 18 to 30-something tours. We have uh, expedition trips in the Galapagos or Antarctica for, that are wow. generally an older group. But we have active trips. We have our National Geographic Journeys, which were you know, educational-based trips. Um, and then we have just classic trips. We have local living. We have wellness tours. I mean, we have something for everyone in every demographic actually now.
2: Right. And then, of course, this pandemic, man, what a brutal blow this has been for the whole industry. How, how has it been in particular? You, could you go into a little bit more detail about how it's how it's affected your bottom line there? Have you had to lay a lot of people off?
4: Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, early. I mean, as I said, it escalated so quickly from uh, we've, we've, we've laid off over a thousand people, uh, to wow. be totally frank. And uh, we at one point we. Furloughed people, hoping we could bring people back because we thought it was going to be a quick response and a shorter. And we've, we've, you can imagine we have operations in a hundred countries, we have tours in a hundred countries, and every single country has, in, you know, different aid programs and ways to support businesses, and every single one of them is different. Every single one of them have different restrictions. Um, some are good, some are not so good, and so we've. It's it's much more of a comp- complex situation dealing with go- global government furlough programs, aid programs. Um, and then, you know, we have, you know, we have like over t- about 2,500 employees globally. Yeah. Um, and then, and, and adjusting the company for what, what we're going to look like on the other side, it's been a real challenge. Um, I've never experienced anything in my 30 years of running G Adventures, but, you know, we do the best we can. We're making, some, we've had to make some really tough decisions. You know, we're at the right size that we have to be right now. Um, and we're just waiting. We're in hibernation. We're in hibernation, waiting for people yeah. to travel again. But I don't think we're any different than anyone else. I mean, you, know, you say that we're largely shut down, I mean, we really are shut down. I mean, like, borders are closed. Countries are closed. There's actually countries that are forbidding their citizens to actually leave the country. You know, this has gone from, like, to, like, a bad Will Smith movie. Like, we're just, we're, yeah. we, we, the world is shutting down around us, and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. My
2: guest is Bruce Poon Tip. He's a Canadian travel entrepreneur. He's the founder of G Adventures, which is an adventure travel company. Um, before this hit, I know you guys were experiencing like exponential growth, right? Like, what kind of growth numbers yeah. were? You, Where's your company hitting there before this whole thing happened?
4: Oh boy! So December, January, and February—the three months just before the shutdown in March—we were growing about thirty-five to thirty-eight percent every month on a thirty-year-old wow. company. It's the largest kind of it's on big numbers, right? Like we're a large company. We're the largest uh, small group of venture company in the world. So we were actually crushing it just before the pandemic. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's business and and we will return. I mean, as much as it's a doom and gloom story, um, I do believe you know there's going to be great opportunities for us. We will survive. Um, we've, as I said, we've made all the tough decisions. Now um, we're looking forward now, and we see the opportunities ahead of us. So we're, yeah. there's there's a bit of an extra it's a bit of excitement for the first time in a long time, um, in the office. Well, we actually, we don't even have an, our offices are closed in <laughs> yeah. our remote offices.
2: Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, the growth that you guys were on there just before the, this thing hit. And as you mentioned, you'd been in the business for, for 30 years. Is, is that a reflection of, you know, the, the pop, the growing popularity pre pandemic of, of adventure travel, like people looking for like a different type of travel experience? Yeah.
4: Yeah. I think that's I think in general, people are moving towards, you know, owning less things and collecting more experiences, that, that, that kind of yeah. old adage that kind of goes around. But, I mean, it also has to do with us. We, we're an extremely entrepreneurial company where we've always been. And we're very, you know, we, we pride ourselves on being nimble and speed to market is everything with us as an entrepreneur, business, even after 30 years. And we're constantly creating new programs, new, you know, we launched Wellness this year, which was huge. National Geographic Journeys, which continues to grow, which is only like a three or four year and we do you know we do trips with maps.com for singles we have all kinds of ways in which we've launched new programs over the years and no one spends on R&D like us in the tourism
2: space and now uh, trying to survive bruce you've written a book here about the travel industry unlearn the year the earth stood still Taking a look at the travel business in the wake of COVID nineteen, how do you think this? How do you think this is going to handle? Like, are a lot of businesses going to go under? And which business, which travel businesses, do you think will uh, survive? What
4: do you got to do to survive this thing? I mean, there's no recipe. I mean, cash is king at the moment with businesses. Um, I do think a lot of businesses will go under, given that. You know, most businesses are surviving right now because of government programs, the government support programs. And those are going to start drying up um, before, you know, by the end of the year. And I think some are extended until March of next year, but they can't last forever. Um, And then businesses will have to have cash. I mean, they'll have to survive because um, there's a point where the government can't support the industry anymore. And I think that's when you're going to see real. And you see that in the airline industry where, you know, I think there was a few airlines that were hedging whether they were going to lay off people unless they got government assistance. And I think all businesses are in that situation right now. So um, it's businesses that have, you know, that, that weren't over leveraged before the pandemic right. that were in a good right. cash position that could ride the, the, the ride the, the downturn and weather the storm. Um, and it's it's a, it's a combination of that and how well you responded to the government programs that are available.
2: I was reading about your, your own company's kind of good fortune in that regard, in, in that before the pandemic hit and you guys were growing at such a fantastic clip there, you were looking at uh, taking over some other companies, right? Yeah, we, and I guess yeah, it was a good we, thing
4: that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just the last year there... Um, well, throughout the, the course of uh, 2019, we were in acquisition mode. Yeah, and we actually went through three acquisitions um, that, that fell through. Three acquisitions that we had gone into final discussions with, and they fell through for various reasons. And at the time, I was, you know, we'd done so much work for those acquisitions to get to that point, and I was, I was angry that, you know, two of them actually fell through because the the the, the previous owners just changed their minds after tons of money and work to get to that stage of acquisition. But, you know, things happen for for a reason. And the universe always kind of provides because because I was angry at the time. But if any of those transactions would have gone through and we'd acquired any of those businesses, it it would have been a very different story for us right now.
2: Yeah, maybe a blessing in disguise. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. okay. Looking forward now, you mentioned – the hope for the future like there's a lot of excitement and hope around a vaccine we've seen Mm -hmm. pfizer come out with some of the clinical trials of their vaccine more than 90 percent effective and if this Mm -hmm. if this goes through and if this vaccine does prove to be that successful maybe that's the path forward here to get to get beyond this thing like in your own estimation for the travel business here what what do you think is going to change what has to change do you think in the future
4: I think people first is going to. People will adapt. I mean, right now there's a lot of fear, and there's been a lot of fear around you know the elections, and it's really been politicized about wearing masks, and there's just a lot of fear around it. In any kind of situation that's happened over the years, uh, people adapt and people change. Um, The vaccine is great news. It's going to take a while to distribute, you know, to immunize, you know, throughout the world. Um, And then there's there's a, a a time before herd immunity is kind of. Um, 90%, over 90% is an incredible uh, breakthrough yeah. for this that, that's going to expedite the process. But, but ultimately, people adapt. Like, when you look at what happened with 9-11, uh, people changed how they traveled, people changed security, people changed you know, needing passports to, to everywhere in the world, visa restrictions. Everything changed and people adapted. There was, we've lived through tsunamis, Icelandic volcanoes, um, you know, Ebola, you know, and we will survive this as well. But ultimately, there's a combination of a solution um, the, 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 um, and the human adaptation, like we, we, uh, we accept things. So there'll be early adopters that start traveling, I think in the new year. And these are the people that, you know, that are excited to take the risk. These are the people that line up, you know, for three weeks to get a new iPhone. Um, and, and then they will lead the charge where people get more comfortable and people will have no problems than flying with masks and they'll accept social distancing on the ground. And, and then the next group of people, there'll be a short term and a midterm kind of solution for this.
2: we has got about a minute left here. You mentioned that uh, the, some of the government assistance programs that have been in place have been helpful, but obviously don't last forever. Has that been? Have those government assistance programs that uh, the federal government, and other other levels of government, brought out? Have they been
4: a, a help to you guys in surviving this? Yeah, for sure, but in different countries, like Australia has been amazing, UK has been amazing, the US has not been amazing. It's been a disaster for us. Canada has been in the middle there. I mean, it's been um, you know, it's not as, as 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 robust and helpful as I would like um, compared to other countries and what they're offering businesses. But I mean, they are there. I mean, and they have been good. We've, and without a doubt, I mean, I, I we um, uh, we've uh, we've qualified and they've been very helpful for us for sure. Yeah, what happened in the United States? Nothing. (laughs) They they, did very nothing. I mean, they had these PPE. You know, they had these these loans that they gave out very, you know, indiscreetly to all kinds of businesses that didn't need them. The the application process was a disaster. There was no fixed compensation program for furloughed workers, and also for working furloughed workers. Like, like some governments allowed um, people to stay working as opposed to having to lay them off. Help businesses a lot when workers can stay working, and they help cover their salaries on the days you need them. Bruce, it's been
2: interesting to talk. Amazing.
4: It's been fascinating to talk
2: to you. I wish best best wishes to you and your company in the days ahead, and hope there's better days next year. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, you bet. That is Bruce Poon Tip. He is a canadian travel entrepreneur he's the founder of g adventures all right welcome back to the show tomorrow is world diabetes day yes november 14th it marks the birthday of frederick banting who is the co-discoverer of insulin okay so we thought this is a great opportunity to check in with my guest Jim Beatty, he is a longtime volunteer with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Jim.
5: Good morning, Mike. Good to talk to you.
2: Yeah, okay. World Diabetes Day. That's, uh, that's very cool. And people should remember that Frederick Banting, who discovered insulin, Canadian, right?
5: Absolutely. This is yeah. a Toronto story, a Canadian story. Banting and Beth, the, yeah. the, the uh, discoverers of insulin, uh, 99 years ago. So next year is going to be a huge celebration. Uh, Insulin has been an absolute game changer. I mean, diabetes was a death sentence, uh, and like an immediate death sentence for children. Uh, They discovered insulin. uh, They began those first human trials uh, 99 years ago, and it changed everything. So University of Toronto is, is, uh, is the home of... Of, uh, of where uh, diabetes or where uh, insulin was uh, discovered, and that's why we celebrate uh, or acknowledge tomorrow being uh, Fred Banting's uh, birthday, uh, the um, Diabetes Awareness Month.
2: Okay, very proud distinction for Canada, for sure. Diabetes is, is something that touches so many families. My dad was diabetic, but I mean, he his diabetes came on late in life, which I guess is kind of typical for a lot of people but a lot of other people will get like early onset or juvenile diabetes which is what happened to you right can you could you quickly tell your story jim
5: sure i i got it you know we used to call we used to refer to the two there's two types of diabetes two prevalent types Uh, the type two which your dad probably had uh, older gentleman uh had probably got diabetes late in life type one we often used to call that juvenile diabetes that's when you got that when you were a kid uh But everything's changed, Uh, and you can get any form of diabetes almost at any age. So I got type 1. I got that genetic form of diabetes when I was 36 years old. I was healthy. I've got no history of diabetes anywhere in my family of type 1 diabetes, and all of a sudden, boom, I got hit with type 1. So it didn't take me long before I was on a a full complement of medications, uh, insulin injections, uh, and I've been living with an insulin pump for for a number of years. So uh, that's that's my story, and and unfortunately, it's a story that's happening more and more often. More adults are getting diagnosed with what we used to call juvenile diabetes or type one diabetes. Twenty to twenty five percent of all new diagnoses are among adults.
2: Right. And, right.
5: You know, I, I listen. I've been listening to your show, Mike, uh, today. Uh, your previous guests. You're talking about COVID. COVID obviously is our focus right now, absolutely is a crisis. But just a reminder that diabetes was a healthcare crisis long before COVID. And yeah. once we get COVID under control, diabetes will continue to be a healthcare crisis. So it's, it's, there's no competition here between, between things. It's just like an acknowledgement, and today is what that is, a, an awareness that we really have to crack down on this. More and more Canadians are being diagnosed with diabetes, and it's costing. I mean, there's the health care cost and, and the cost to one's lifestyle, and, and, and it is a fatal, it can be fatal, but it's also a health care cost. It's a cost to all of us as taxpayers.
4: All right,
2: my guest is Jim Beatty. We're talking about World Diabetes Day. And, and Jim, the last time you were on the show, we were talking about a, a government survey. They were surveying British Columbians about so what should be covered under our Medicare system and some of the breakthrough technologies that have come out for people who have to take like people like yourself who have to take daily insulin injections and carefully monitor their, their glucose levels in their blood and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about some of that some of that new technological breakthroughs, how you can you can check your blood levels on your on your cell phone?
5: Yeah, exactly. And that is an absolute game changer. So what you're referring to is is something that I use. It's called the Freestyle Libre. Uh, it's it's a product that's made by by Abbott. I'll I'll give you the quick once over what this is. Yeah. Um, I've got a little device on the back of my arm, right on my tricep. Uh, it's about the size of a loony. You Think of a loony sitting on the back of one's arm, yeah. but in the middle of it, there's a little wire that goes into the uh, into the arm, uh, into your into your, uh, your 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 below the skin. Um, That is checking on a 24-hour basis. That is checking my glucose levels. So I simply have to rub my cell phone up. I have an app on my phone. I rub it against my arm. In an instant, boom, I can see my glucose levels. That is a game changer for me. So the Freestyle Libre, I, I check it before I drive. I check it before I go for a run. I checked it before I did this radio show. Because you don't want your blood glucose to fall very low. I mean, think of, think of how bad that could be if you're driving and your blood glucose goes extremely low, or if it goes high. Both of them are going to cause significant health consequences. So we're talking about, as part of Diabetes Awareness Month, we're, we're suggesting to government that the government should pay for this. Pharmacare should pay for this kind of technology. Yeah. You're right. There was a survey uh, uh british columbians were asked about this and and today we're asking people to continue it there's been no resolution Pharmacare doesn't pay for it so for me i pay for this device i pay for all this technology no one pays for it i've got health care uh insurance but it doesn't pay for it mine doesn't pay yeah. for it so i pay for this out of my pocket right. uh it's it's it can be expensive uh especially for lower income folks so um, how much does it how much we, does it
2: cost typically
5: well, this device I have to change it every two weeks uh, right. and it costs about ninety to a hundred dollars every two weeks wow, uh, okay. and that's in place of the finger pricks so so now I don't do the finger pricks uh, you know where you you regularly see that where you take you, you probably had that at the doctor's office where you
3: right. they do
5: a little poke of the finger, get a little drop of blood this new system, the freestyle replaces that. So um, the government will pay for the finger uh, uh, those strips, those little strips that you see, uh, those cost about a dollar each. The government will pay for that. Farm pays for that. But this uh, new system that is easier, that doesn't make my fingers into a pin cushion, uh, the government doesn't pay for it at present. So we're hoping that the the BC government, I mean, Ontario covers it, Quebec covers it, the Yukon cover it, so other provinces uh, have already agreed to pay for this kind of technology, uh, but British Columbia so far hasn't. Uh, we're hoping uh, that, that it, it soon will.
2: Okay. Is there an argument for, you know, obviously every government is is watching its bottom line. Maybe things are a bit different in the age of COVID where deficits seem to be going through the roof and, I don't know, spending seems to be no, there's, there doesn't seem to be any limit on spending, but... Typically, governments will obviously take a look at if if they're getting value for the money that the decisions that they make. I mean, is there an argument that if you if you funded a system like this and more more people had access to this technology, you could maybe uh, forestall future healthcare costs? Like if people can catch a problem early.
5: Well, you know absolutely. I mean, yeah. I can I can tell you my health is better. Because of this technology, I'm checking on a regular basis, yeah. so I can tell you that my health is better because of this. Um, the, the, you know, the the researchers have found that um, that you have a thirty percent, there's a thirty percent reduction in acute diabetes events. Uh, so that would mean a really high blood glucose, a really low glucose event. Um, because of this kind of technology, a thirteen percent reduction in hospitalizations—that's what wow. we're trying mm. to prevent. So, yeah. if you can, if you have a better picture of your health today, you're going to be a better managed in the future. So that means that you're going to have reduced costs down the line. This disease is costly today for 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 young people, but it gets really expensive for the healthcare system okay. if they have if people have to be hospitalized. So. We're, we're really working on, on trying to uh, raise awareness of this and trying to ensure that, that British Columbians know about this, the government knows about this. So there is, a, there is a, a place that people can go if they want their voice heard. It's called Diabetes Strategy Now, diabetesstrategynow.ca. It's okay. a website. You go there, and you can type in your name, and you can send a letter directly to the premier, to Adrian Dix, to your local MLA um, to try to show them that, hey, this is important technology, and we would be better with it, uh, and the healthcare care system okay. would be better if we funded it.